Welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. We're here recording a remote podcast on the topic of Swift features in action at Irvington School in Portland, Oregon. And our guest today is the principal of Irvington School, Kathleen Elwood. So welcome, Kathleen. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you so much for letting me share some of our experience. Great. We're so excited to hear from you. I thought we could just start with you telling our listeners a little bit about Irvington School and your role at the school. Great. Um, yes, our, our school is a K-8 school uh, here in Portland Public Schools in Portland, Oregon. Um, so we are considered to be an urban school. Um, we have a more diverse student population than the majority of the district. Can you tell me a little bit about your school's vision? What sets Irvington apart? What, do you, what does your school believe? You know, our school um, actually likes to look at the whole child. So we have that focus of academic achievement, but we also are very focused on racial equity and social justice. And so we want our classrooms to be reflective of the communities that we want to see within society. Great. And so how did you come up with the vision for that for your school? Yeah, we actually had a very lengthy um, visioning process um, three years ago. We, um, our leadership team uh, that was formed when we joined the SWIFT grant, um, we ended up combining our school site council with our leadership team, and um, we drafted some ideas for what we thought our vision could look like for our school. Um, we then vetted those ideas with a number of stakeholder groups, um, committees within our staff, but also we have a number of different parent groups that we um, try to get input from regularly. And then we decided we came down with three choices and as, as to our top picks. And then we wanted to get input from a broader community because our leadership team realized that even with all the parent meetings that we have, we have a PTA, we have our families of black and brown students, we have our Latino families group, as well as others, parents increasing equity, um, that was still only representative of about 50 to 60 of our families, and we have a student population of about 465. So we decided we needed to try to catch parents where they were. Um, so what we decided to do was to put our options up, as well as um, options for our school, um, our CAP plan, our comprehensive achievement plan. Um, we decided to put those op options up on a big bulletin board and roll it out every morning, because what we realized is that most of our students walk to school. We have that luxury, uh, being a, an urban school. Um, however, we do have a student population that has had to move out of the area due to gentrification. So we have a lot of foot traffic, but we also have a lot of folks dropping off in the mornings. Um, so what we did for a period of about two weeks is we actually took this rolling <laughs> bulletin board outside each day and had parents and students vote using a dot activity, you know, just the colored dots that you often see in oh, trainings. Yeah. And um, so they would basically, they had so many dots, they received five dots, and they were able to spend their dots however they liked. So if they thought that something was a better choice than something else, they could spend more than one dot on that option. 
We not only did this with the foot traffic in the back of the school where the students congregate, we also actually rolled the bulletin board up to, um, up to the cars where the cars drop off students and did a drive-through option <laughs> because many of our parents don't have time to park the car, get out of the car, and come on over. So we had sent the information to the parents in advance, and the parents could basically come and tell us how they wanted their dots spent. Um, there, we stood there with the bulletin board right there. Um, we did a similar process to get staff input and additional student input and um, basically use that to guide the development of our vision. What's really interesting is that we ended up having to compromise because what we realized is that the staff was focused on the whole child, whereas our parents were also focused on academic achievement being a priority. So we ended up combining the two, um, the two concepts and the two features um, as opposed to just having, you know, based on majority vote, we wanted to make sure that all voices were honored in the process. That is such a good idea. I've got to say, I've never heard of a drive-through option for getting <laughs> parent and student input, and that that's a great idea for really getting input from all of those stakeholders and then combining it to create your shared vision. Well, it's really a matter of, of figuring out where the parents are. You know, in the past, yeah. I worked at Title I schools, and I would actually go to housing project community centers, or um, because I had a number of students bust in my previous positions in Long Beach Unified School District in California, I would actually go to their home schools and hold meetings there um, at a school that was actually within walking distance. So I kind of had learned that in my past, you know, teaching experience, and uh, tried to bring that here. That's great advice for other principals, too, just to meet families where they're at. Um, and this is a great example of that in action. So while you were talking about that, you referenced your school's leadership team. And it sounds like they were really instrumental in this process as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the teaming structures that you have in place to support your work and what the role of that leadership team is? Yes, absolutely. Our, our leadership team was initially created um, to discuss SWIFT and how, would we how we would implement um, the SWIFT framework at our school, um, but it soon um, transformed, as I said. We ended up combining our school site council because we realized that both teams were talking about a lot of the same issues and decided to vet all of our committees through our leadership team, so that was kind of our guiding body. Um, on our leadership team, we took care to have representation from all um, grade levels, grade level bands, I guess. We don't have all nine grade levels represented, but we have a representative from, say, for example, K1, 2, 3, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then we also took care to try to make sure that um, the leadership team was also representative of our community. Um, so we have uh, one parent representative from our PTA we had to work really hard then to also bring on a representative from our families of black and brown students uh, group, and then also a representative from our Latino families group. It's taken uh, a few years to actually get those representatives to feel comfortable, you know, coming into that meeting space and participating. And then with students, we initially had student representatives, but um, we had difficulty um, because of the time of the meetings when it was convenient for the parents, wasn't convenient for students. And uh, quite frankly, they were just flat out bored part of the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder why. We, yeah, I don't know. It's such exciting thing. <laughs> um, so what we did is we started um, we started offering. You know, this is when we're talking about something that pertains directly to the student body. Could you come to this meeting? You know, and just having them come for parts of a meeting. 
that still is difficult for the families. So um, what we've done instead is we now will take certain things to our student leadership group, which is representative of the student body, get their input. Um, we always invite them, of course, but um, they rarely attend. But um, So we've had to find this alternative way to get input from the students and um, then bring that to the leadership team. Great. It sounds like you found some ways to really make the, that team efficient and to get input from lots of different stakeholders. So I've also got to tell you that you're a little bit of a movie star. <laughs> oh, so, no. <laughs> so I... I saw some examples of your school's implementation and Dan Habib Swift's film together, which um, our listeners can access at swiftschools.org on the Swift shelf. And in that film, you specifically talk about uh, your school using resources creatively. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, what, um, when we um, looked at the SWIFT framework as a school, when we started out um, as a SWIFT school, you know, we had a lot of components of the framework already in place. We had um, strong PBIS work already happening here at the school, culture responsive PBIS. And um, we had other components already in place, but what we really wanted to focus, focus on was um, the inclusion of students in our school who were in two self-contained classrooms called in intensive skills classrooms. Um, these were students experiencing cognitive disabilities of one type or another, um, where it had been determined that a self-contained setting would be the most appropriate placement for them. We wanted to see that shift. And so um, what we decided to do, uh, because we have those two self-contained classrooms, each classroom had one teacher and three paraprofessionals um, assigned to 12 to 16 students. Um, what we decided to do was to shake up that model and that we wanted each of the students to actually be um, a part of a classroom community, a full part of the classroom community, and to actually be on the roll sheet of that teacher as opposed to having these separate roll sheets for these self-contained settings. Um, so what we did is we had to look at all of our resources and we literally looked at all of our teaching staff. And now when we're planning out our year, we're actually in this process right now, we um, have a, uh, a pocket chart where we have each student with an IEP there for each grade level, as well as um, any other students who um, may fall into a tier three category in one, in one area or another, such as reading, writing, behavior, um, because of course, Kids aren't tier three across the board. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so we, we take all that into consideration for each grade level and kind of decide how to distribute our staff with special, special education licenses. Um, and we don't just count teachers. We see our paraprofessionals as very valued members of our instructional community because, you know, many of my, my general education teachers have really not done much tier three instruction in the past. However, our paraprofessionals are absolute experts at conducting small tier three groups because that's what they've done throughout their career in the self-contained setting. So um, they're highly valued as we, um, as we sort out how we're going to use our staff and where the supports are needed. So we create what I consider what we call extended professional learning communities. And these are basically, um, for example, my kindergarten and grade one general education teachers have a special educator who works with them, as well as an educational assistant, and they're seen as an extended PLC time. And so each, 
team is given time to meet at our staff meetings. I have the first 45 minutes of the staff meeting time designated just for anyone who um, works with those students in that grade band um, to meet together and discuss how to best support students. So that everybody, the general education teachers, the special educator, and the educational assistant are all um, responsible for all the students in those grade bands, not just for students they case manage or students they have assigned to their role sheet. Um, but we're starting to look at the students more collectively and take more collective responsibility. And that thank, that's thanks to SWIFT because um, when we started, um, the, the Jessica, uh, who was working with us uh -huh. at the time, um, basically, you know, challenged us to look at, um, at funding labels and how limiting they were and kind of expand our thinking about how can we use our staff more creatively. We have these great resources. We have these, extra, these expert special educators who know how to differentiate instruction. And we've got these general educators who know core content the special educators weren't very familiar with. So how do we bring those two um, talent pools together to best benefit all students? Because as we all know, we have students who are just as needy as a student with um, who might be labeled as needing an IEP who just don't qualify for an IEP. Um, and so this way we're um, using our resources more collectively and um, just thinking of how we serve our students differently. I love how you describe that whole process. At SWIFT, we talk a lot about just inventorying your resources and thinking about how you're using those and maybe using them in a different way that can better support all students. And I think you, the example you gave is perfect for describing that process. And it yeah, sounds and there like- there are lots of tools on the SWIFT website that actually lend, lend themselves to, to supporting that process. Great, great. I'm glad that you found those helpful. And for our listeners, you can access those tools from the SWIFT website, swiftschools.org. Um, some of those tools are found on SWIFT Guide that you can get to from the SWIFT website. Um, and I also love that you talked about how you built in that time for planning between the general educator, the special educators, the paraprofessionals that are working with those students. That's such an important component of it that it doesn't always happen. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that was a big challenge because our paraprofessionals have a different contract than our teachers. Mm -hmm. And so they, they do not have to stay as long, you know, mm -hmm. on our staff meeting days. Um, and even though I offered, uh, one thing I can do as an administrator is offer to flex their time or find a way to pay them extra hourly to stay longer. But the reality is that at my particular school, we have a lot of young families. So people didn't want to stay late, even with that flex time being offered. I understand or the extra that. Pay. <laughs> yeah. So I had to find way. And they're working with kids all day. The paraprofessionals right. are often with students for safety needs or line of sight duties and things like that. So literally the only time we had was that little bit of after school time before their contract ends. And even though it's taking up professional development time, um, I feel that some of the richest professional development we can have as educators is having time to collaborate with one another. I agree. Thank you so much for sharing that. Another thing that I saw in the film together um, that features Irvington uh, were some examples of co-teaching. Can you tell me about what co-teaching looks like at Irvington and what supports you've had to put in place to help make it effective? Because I know it can sometimes be challenging. 
Yeah, well, our second year um, as part of the SWIFT program, we were able to um, basically wheel and deal with our district and um, do a co-teaching model. We had a third grade classroom where we had one full-time general educator and one full-time special educator working together all day, every day. Um, the, the special education educator literally had no other responsibilities other than to, you know, support that third grade classroom. Um, what we saw on our, with our data is that the academic achievement was far outpaced other classrooms. And there were a number of students at that third grade level, that's where you start to um, sometimes identify potential learning disabilities or, or other things that are blocking a child's ability to be successful academically and behaviorally. And um, we're able to nip a lot of things in the bud, as we say, yeah. <laughs> and just um, kind of catch them at that earlier age and do that intervention. Um, so we feel like we actually, um, through those interventions, in some cases actually prevented um, students needing an individualized education plan. Instead, they were able to use the 504 plan or um, teachers were able to modify things in their instruction to support them. So we definitely saw huge success with that model. Um, and I would love to see that across the board, even one special educator, educator for one grade level where there are co-teaching opportunities. However, um, the following year, reality set in, fiscal yeah. reality, and um, it was not something the district could support. So our co-teaching model, um, as I said, we have different grade level bands. I have my one, um, my K-1 grade level band with a special educator and educational assistant working with the general educators. Then I have another grade, grade five, for example, where we had um, 18 identified students, students identified as tier three, either due um, to having an individualized education plan or for other reasons that didn't qualify for an individualized education plan. So we assigned one teacher and one paraprofessional just to those grades. Um, so the way our um, co-teaching has worked has, has varied based on the number of people working together. For example, that fifth grade special educator who's only working with two teachers, they do a lot of um, walk to reading and walk to math. And um, she's able to do co-teaching as well as parallel teaching with those two teachers. Then I've got another special educator who's working with five students and um, the amount of co-teaching that she's able to do with those, within those grade bands is not quite as significant as a fifth grade teacher. So it really varies, again, um, from grade to grade based on, on student need and based on um, the level of support that we put into each grade level. I then also have the benefit, you might have seen Katie Lee, who is our speech pathologist in our, um, she was featured in the videos. She's wonderful. And, um, <laughs> yeah, she actually serves all grade levels. She finds a way to get in and co-teach at, um, at a number of different grade levels in a number of different ways. And um, one of the things she does that I love the most is she'll actually go into our kindergarten classes and actually as a tier one support, um, go in and teach the whole class different things your mouth does when it's making different sounds. And I am fully convinced that um, it's basically, if you've ever done Linda Mood, you have mm -hmm. Linda Mood yeah. Bell, you know, um, it's basically teaching them, you know, those different mouth positions and, and things of that nature um, that she does in speech therapy. But I, I do believe that because of that tier one intervention that we may have um, helped certain students become aware of that in their minds as they're reading and speaking and um, students who might have needed speech therapy ended up not needing it, in my opinion. 
Um, so we have a lot of great uh, co-teaching opportunities going on like that. I found that mandating it isn't effective in any way, shape, or form, but creating the space and the time for planning, um, it happens very naturally. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great example of how sometimes it can be challenges because challenging because of limited resources and um, differences in staff personalities and things like that. So I think you're you're right on when you say this isn't exactly something you mandate, but that happens more naturally. And I love how even when you were um, given certain challenges, fiscal challenges, that you really got creative on how you did that and how you assign one per grade level. And I love that you're re using relative service providers to meet some of that need in that role. So yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I, I do believe that one special educator, one general educator, educator is a fabulous model. Like it actually benefited all of our students right. in that in that class. Um, and I would love it if we could make, I see it as, a, as an investment we could make in education. Um, however, that's not the reality. <laughs> but, but it's high in the sky. Maybe I'll make that happen in the next, yeah. <laughs> later in my career. <laughs> I think if anybody can, Kathleen, you can make it happen. <laughs> and in the meantime, you're really working with the resources that you have and you're doing that in creative ways. So I think that's really great. And so you did reference when talking about teaching that you've felt like the data was really supportive of that when you were ever able to do it in the model that you liked. What role has data played in guiding your decisions in general or other decisions of your leadership team? Yeah, data plays a, a big role. We, um, When I started Irvington um, six years ago, I started as an assistant principal under Lisa McCall, who was actually a um, fabulous principal we had in place when we um, climbed on board the swift train. <laughs> um, when I started, our, our staff just was not um, used to looking at data, mainly because our district did not have district-wide data collection systems in place. Um, Lisa and I were able to shift that mentality. Um, she came from Washington, the state of Washington, and I came from California, where data is, um, and database decision-making is emphasized, and we obviously had extensive training in those areas. Um, and so we brought a lot of that training from those states to, to our school and started finding, um, started making decisions about what data we should collect because I'm also very opposed to collecting data that is absolutely, absolutely useless that you yeah. can't use to actually inform teaching. Sometimes we drown um, in data, do don't we? Educators. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's like what we're asked to do as educators all the time. If I can't help my teaching, I don't even care, you know. Right. But... Um, but uh, also how to use that data to make decisions. So um, currently at our school, our leadership team lo looks at school-wide data. Um, our grade-level professional learning communities look at grade-level data, um, both behavioral and academic. And we use um, SWIST to track our behavioral data. And um, our individual grade-level PLCs look at individual student data also. Um, whereas our, our culture responsive PBIS team or school climate team looks at uh, common area behavioral data. And then again, at the grade level PLC level, we look at individual student data. So we're looking at data in a variety of ways. Um, whenever we look at data because of our racial equity focus, we um, always look at it with a racial lens um, because we don't want that to escape us. Because what we have found at our school 
For example, in our um, Smarter Balance Assessment last year, our school scored a level five as an average overall, which is the highest level you can get. We were dropped to a four because of our participation rate. We had a number of folks opt out. Um, however, our black students, um, if you look at the data with a racial lens, scored at a level one, which is the lowest level, which is actually below our ESL students. So even with all our racial, racial equity work and everything else, we're scratching our heads as to, okay, what do we need to do differently because something here isn't working? But if we'd just gone by that school-wide number, oh, we're at a level four or level five, we wouldn't have even noticed um, that we had a, a specific group of students who were not being successful. That's a really good point of how important it is to consider those subgroups that are oftentimes marginalized and clearly a really important part of your school's vision and the work that you do. Well, our data also show that that, that group of students is actually improving. We've actually seen growth over the last few years in our Dibbles assessments and other assessments that we give. So, but there's obviously still a huge discrepancy and disproportionality. Right. So we're making progress, but we've still got a long way to go. <laughs> well, this may kind of lead into my next question. My next question is, um, what priorities does your team identify based on the data that you look at? And I'm assuming that this is one of your priorities moving forward. <laughs> Yeah, we, um, we, ever, we have to, um, a few times a year, look at our comprehensive achievement plan, which is our CAP plan that we do here in Portland Public Schools. Um, um, what we do is, um, actually, Laura Miltenberger, who is our uh, Oregon SWIFT um, supporter um, through the University of Kansas, she has been absolutely fabulous in supporting us with really examining data in an intentional way. Um, my leadership team looks at all the data we can possibly collect. And that's um, everything ranging from our Dibbles and Easy CBM scores to our Swiss data to our, um, we even look at parent surveys, um, staff surveys that the state of Oregon um, gives schools, um, our, our TFI um, tiered um, fidelity inventory that we use with our, as part of our culture responsive PBIS work. We look at all those different pieces of data. And what we did this last year is I actually presented each piece of data to the staff and gave the staff time in small groups to look at strengths and challenges for each type of data. And then that input from the staff was then taken by the leadership team, and the leadership team examined all the staff comments and um, made priorities based on, based on the data as well as um, the FIT and FIA assessments that we have embedded within SWIFT. Um, what's beautiful about the FIT and the FIA is that they specifically tell you they have best practices as the highest score you can get is basically the best practice for that particular area. So we're actually able to use this rubric from the FIT and the FIA to help create our goals, our action steps. So um, it kind of takes a lot of the work out of the, it takes all the guesswork out, you know, and, um, and the FIT and the FIA are actually tools we can use to help us guide our action planning. Wonderful. And for our listeners, that um, Kathleen's referencing a couple of our fidelity tools, and the FIA is available to anybody from SwissSchools.org as well. And so that's, that's great that you're able to use those tools that are looking at your fidelity to really help set your priority and action planning moving forward as well. So, so sorry, I'm trying to avoid the acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Even I am like... 
don't ask me what the letters mean all the time. <laughs> There's so many acronyms I know, I know. in education. <laughs> You have to be careful with that sometimes. I know. (laughs) Well, Kathleen, you've given so many great examples of how you're really taking the SWIFT features and putting them in in action. Can you tell me, in your perspective, what the outcomes have been as a result of the work that you've been doing with SWIFT? Yeah, ironically, um, as much as I talk about data, I think the most important outcome is not measurable in any way, shape, or form. And um, I, I know they don't like to hear that. But um, the, the most important outcome I feel we've had is shifting um, how our students, our community, our families, and teachers are viewing students who were formally isolated from the rest of the school population. Um, I feel that the acceptance of students with disabilities is just as important as racial equity work, um, gender and sexual identity, all those areas. And those are all things we do as part of our social justice work here at Irvington. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was easy it was easy to lead into it because I was able to say, hey, we're, we're spending all this time and energy on racial equity, yet we still have a group of students who are being marginalized. Um, and not intentionally by any way, shape, or form, but we realized that um, we had a lot of assumptions um, that weren't necessarily accurate. And so um, what I've seen is students who were, and you may have seen this out in public, you know, often I'll see people encounter um, someone with a, a disability that might be more significant and, um, and avoid eye contact or, you know, fumble around and not know how to interact with that person. And um, what I feel that we're doing here is because our classrooms are more representative of the actual community our students will be in as they go out into the world, as they are learning how to interact, how to honor differences, um, race, disability, um, gender and sexual identity, uh, all those areas, um, and how to accept people for who they are, but really see them for who they are also. Um, so I feel that, and I've seen this whole shift, um, for example, last year we were going to have a cut in resources, and I had to say to my staff when we were talking about how we were going to apply our, um, our framework, I had to say, do we need to pull back you know, from doing inclusion if we don't have the amount of staffing to support it to the extent that we've had it up till now? And my staff unanimously said, no, they are our kids. We are not going back to a self-contained model. If we can at all help it, um, we will find a way to do this. Um, and my agreement to them then was to not accept any transfers over the summer unless they were a sibling. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I didn't accept any transfers. We kept our class sizes smaller. So even though we didn't have the same level of support that we had had last year, um, my teachers were so committed to the model that they they um, were not willing to go back to the way things have looked before. And I think that says a huge amount when um, teachers are constantly, you know, concerned about workload issues and, and things of that nature, um, that as a staff, our philosophy was, we will make this happen. All the kids are our kids, and um, we will not go back to isolating one particular group. Well, I've got to say, I think that's probably the most important outcome that we're looking for. So when you started with, I'm not sure if this is the answer. I think shifting (laughs) views and um, really making that the priority for your staff, I think is so important. And I think what you're saying about just 
all means all, learning to interact with each other and not segregating certain groups, whether it's based on race or disability of all the other, or all the other things we tend to segregate people on. I think mm-hmm. um, I think that's a really important outcome. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Uh, we're about out of time. It's gone so quickly. I could have kept talk, talking for an hour. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to li- our listeners to know as we finish up? Well, I mean, as, as rosy as everything sounds, we certainly have had our roadblocks also. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, this year we've had um, staffing challenges. Uh, we've had a shortage of staff. There haven't been enough uh, paraprofessional substitutes in the district. Um, so it's not always uh, sunshine and roses. Um, and I'm happy to share both our successes and challenges with anybody who's interested in, in hearing about it because I also want to paint a realistic picture um, because we're really all in this together and um, we have to figure out as a profession, you know, how to best serve all of our students. So we're willing to share uh, anything about our experience with folks. And thank you. I appreciate that from you. And I think that's a really good point to end on that it it is often challenging. And so I think some of the things that you're doing, like using your resources creatively and getting stakeholder input and some of the things that you shared are what we need to do because it isn't always easy. And there absolutely are challenges and roadblocks to this work. But I think you're a great example of overcoming some of those and continuing to work to overcome more. I really appreciate it. Well, and it's also a team effort. It's certainly not just me. It's um, I have a whole team of fabulous educators um, who are committed and wonderful, and they're really the ones who are on the front lines making all of this happen. Absolutely. Shout out to the educators. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, just as an aside, I had, um, because of the movie, we kept making jokes about being movie stars. Exactly. (laughs) Um, For for our opening staff meeting this year, um, the assistant principal and I actually had gotten a red carpet, um, put stars on it. We hung up Hollywood decorations and we handed out Academy Award statuettes to the staff who had appeared in the movie. I love that. Yeah, we always try to find some way to celebrate. So that fit this this year. That's great. And for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, they should definitely go check it out because your staff are wonderful and it really comes through in the movie. Yeah, they are the best for sure. So for our listeners, if you want to know the full story about SWIFT implementation, you can go to swiftschools.org and you can click on SWIFT Talk or SWIFT Shelf to learn more about some of our other resources. SWIFT is a national K center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. Thank you.